Is hell. All right then. Richard, what the hell was that music you were playing before the show? Lord of the Yum Yum. <laughs> he's a local Chicago guy. It's he's so hilarious. I remember Lord of the Yum Yum. I never saw him, never heard the music, oh, but I remember seeing uh, ads in the reader for he, Lord. He, of he, would, he he performed at the MCA a couple times for like summer solstice or something. It was oh my god, he was so such amazing artist to see live. He was <laughs> he, he does it all by himself. Does the Museum of Contemporary Art have a video of it online? Um, probably. Probably not. I mean, I, I don't know who knows, but he, maybe if he checked his website or something, I'm sure he has some promotional stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell as the Trump administration was winding down its last few weeks in office. With everyone's attention on claims of the vote being stolen and looming threats of a far right wing insurgency trying to stop the election certification process. Actions were being taken by the administration that could have detrimental effects on the environment for years, even decades to come. But hey, that's what the Department of the Interior does. It takes land from the public, gives it to private interests so they can do with it what they please. It's what the department has always done, which is weird because you'd think they'd be for protecting public lands for the public instead of selling them off and not always to the highest bidder either, which doesn't make sense. But the Interior Department is not as much a protector of nature and pristine lands as it is a resource manager. In fact, as our guest will point out today, the Interior Department is one of the largest supervisors of fossil fuel resources on the planet. Interior has a particular impact on the indigenous whose lands they manage as well. But for the first time in U.S. history, a Native American has been nominated for the cabinet position of Secretary of the Interior. Congresswoman Deb Holland. So what might that mean for how the interior and indigenous will be managed during the Biden administration? We'll find out the impact of the Trump administration on public lands and what might change with a Native American in charge in a few minutes when we speak with journalist Nick Bolin, who wrote the article, The Land Was Ours, Trump, Biden and Public Lands, which was posted at The Drift. And you can find that at thedriftmag.com. Nick is a freelance journalist and correspondent for High Country News at HCN.org. You can follow them at High Country News. Nick often writes about public lands, energy industries, and community organizing. Find out more about Nick and find all of his writing by going to his website, Nick Bolin. That's B-O-W-L-I-N.com. Follow Nick on Twitter at NP Bolin. We'll have more of your answers to the question from hell as well. And I am continuing my three-part series on the passing of my biggest brother, Matthew Mertz. This time, Matt is accused by the FBI of plotting to assassinate President Gerald R. Ford. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this morning's show. If it is Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. How are you doing, Richard? Anything new by you? I've not seen you for a couple of weeks because at this time last week I wasn't able to stand, sit, lay down, do anything. So what have you been doing for the past fortnight? Well, I have some breaking news. Oh, let's hear it. <laughs> a week ago Sunday... On the first day that the temperatures rose above freezing for yes. over three weeks, all the uh, icy snow on my roof started to melt and it fell off my roof and took my gutter with it. Ah, Jesus! <laughs> Dude! It was brilliant. It was such a great sound. Oh, man. So did you put it back up yet? Well, I did. Luckily, I have a neighbor who's like a contractor, roofing guy, and he sent some guys over, like a 
two days later and uh and they took care of it. We so. were really afraid of having something like that happen at our house or the uh, slumlord building next door because he never uh, clears his gutters whatsoever and their roof is about to collapse in. So we thought for sure there was this 15-foot-wide, 20-foot-long hunk of ice that came off their building at right. one point. So we were so afraid that something like that was going to happen to us because all of our uh, downspouts had frozen over and exactly. the water was up on the roof. Right. So I talked to Pete about it, uh, the guy who owns Carrie's Lounge downstairs, and he said, oh, yeah, I have the exact same problem what you do is you get uh, the company comes out and they put an electric wire yes. in your downspout and it heats it up to keep it melted yes i had no idea that there was such a thing and i was like well that sounds like a couple of hundred bucks and he's like no dude that's like a thousand dollars to get that done <laughs> so i don't know I, I guess i'll have to do it this summer but i don't know <laughs> but more importantly richard what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? What's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff hears the quiet part loud. So we'll be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. So make sure you get your answers in by then. Again, the question from hell is, what's the hot tr- fashion trend of spring 2021? Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Thanks to everyone who has sent their condolences about the passing of my brother in these very difficult times. Your kind words have made this time a lot easier. So I, I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone who has sent their sympathies for... My bad back. That made it so we couldn't do any shows last week. Like this email George sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. George writes, you guys are running a great show. Sorry to hear about your back. It could be a muscle imbalance. For example, the quadricep and or hamstring could be tight. If that's the case, a stretch for each would probably help. Remember, start slow, then increase range of motion. George. Thanks, George. And instead of remembering to start slow with my stretching. I have to remember to start, period. I am learning from all of the suggestions you have sent in, all of our guests have sent in, that maintaining your back so it does not seize up every so often, making you unable to walk, stand, lay down, sit up, anything without intense pain, You must have some degree of discipline to have a daily routine of exercise, and every word of that sentence is anathema to everything I stand for. So thanks, George, and everyone for your tips on how to fix my back. But now it's it's up to me, which means the likelihood that I will throw my back out again is probably very high. We also got an email from Braden in Australia who writes, Hi, Chuck. Ketan Joshi is an Australian climate data analyst and communicator, currently based in Norway. I think he might be the right person to talk to about how the right-wing media sphere blaming Texas blackouts on renewable energy is very similar to what happened after storms killed the power in South Australia in 2016. He's got a brand new book out called Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future. Braden then links us to a recent article by Catan at the Renew Economy website. One is headlined, how sudden trips of gas and coal plants triggered Texas energy catastrophe. Braden adds, as far as the question of politicians as guests, if you're going to have anyone on other than the late Huey Long, as suggested by another listener, I would suggest Democrat Lee Carter from the House of Delegates of Virginia would be my pick. He's been instrumental in introducing and passing legislation protecting workers' rights, implementing sensible gun controls, and banning the death penalty in that state. And most importantly for any politician, he's a great follow on Twitter. Here's hoping that your back feels better and the snow doesn't collapse the back deck. It did not. We were very surprised and happy it did not. A few days later, Braden uh, sent an update writing, Catan has just had an article published in The Guardian, making a direct comparison between 2021 in Texas and South Australia in 2016. The article is titled, Australia was the first casualty of the big blackout lie, blaming wind power. The U.S. could be next. All the best, Braden. Braden, I cannot thank you enough for that guest suggestion. Catan sounds absolutely fantastic. It's a topic that we've wanted to talk about on the show, and we haven't really found the right person yet. 
And I think, uh, I believe at least, Alex is already trying to get Catan on the show. So thanks for the great tip, Braden. And as we have already determined, Braden, our listeners have implored us to never have another politician on the show again. We've only had two, maybe three in the 25 years we've been on. But yeah, we're not going to have politicians on the show unless something dramatically changes. And who knows? It might. Again, if you have any guest suggestions or topic ideas or any comment on the show at all, send them to us via email at chuckatthisishell.com. Tweet them to us at This Is Hell Radio. Message them to us via Facebook. And we'll probably share your thoughts on air. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. Coming up, the Trump administration raced to privatize public lands in its final days in office. What can and will the Biden administration do when it comes to the interior? And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question, Mel, which is what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? What's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? As well as sharing with you who will be on tomorrow's show. Plus, we'll tell you who is. Uh, plus, I will explain how the hell the FBI thought my biggest brother, Matt Mertz, who passed away last week, was involved in a plot to assassinate the President of the United States at the time, Gerald Ford. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell in the waning days of the Trump administration while we were all paying attention to something else. There was a mad rush to give private extraction companies access to pristine land for exploitation and profit, forever changing what had been an untouched landscape. Here to tell us what can be done to undo the damage of Trump and what should be done by the Biden administration. Joining us now, journalist Nick Boland wrote the article, The Land Was Ours, Trump, Biden, and Public Lands, which was posted at The Drift Magazine, and you can find that at thedriftmag.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nick. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. Nick is a journalist and correspondent for High Country News, which you can find at hcn.org and follow them at High Country News. You can find more of Nick's writing as well as more about Nick at his website, nickbolin.com. That's B-O-W-L-I-N. And you can follow Nick on Twitter at N-P-Bolin. I just want to ask you a real quick question about the media. And you write how you begin how in the final weeks of President Trump's administration, as his ranting and calls to insurrection consumed the nation's attention, his agencies were rushing to ensure that a mining company had all the proper permits needed to dig an open pit lithium mine, which will be one of the largest in the world. In all likelihood, this mine's lifespan will exceed 40 years and there's little the incoming Biden administration will be able to do about it. So during the past five years, the three 24-7 cable TV news networks and most of the establishment media seem to give wall-to-wall coverage of everything and anything Trump. So to you, what explains why there was so little attention given to President Trump's environmental policies? What, what is missed in understanding the Trump administration and its legacy when there is only a focus on the impeachment trials, relations with Russia, the far right. What do we miss in understanding the Trump administration when we didn't pay that much attention to his environmental policies? Well, you know, that, that, that's a fair question. And I, I guess the first thing I'll say about the media is that, you know, the, there's a lot of environmental journalists out there, you know, just beat reporters who, who were covering this day to day. Um, so the, the attention was there, but it's not the it's not the sexiest topic always, you know, regulatory policy or permitting that kind of is slowly but surely working its way through the Interior Department. Um, and, you know, especially in, in that lame duck period between uh, the, the November election and when Trump left office. Um, yeah, there was a lot going on and um, the the there were. There was concerted attempts to to finish a couple projects. So you mentioned this this lithium mine in Nevada, where um, this permit was definitely fast tracked, uh, so that it 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 couldn't be rescinded or blocked when Biden's when Biden's people took office. Um, there was uh, a, another rush process to to do a land transfer in Arizona, um, on land that is. Uh, historically sacred, sacred to the San Carlos Apache tribe. Um, and, and when the mining company's done with it, it's, it's gonna be a 
giant thousand foot hole in the ground. Um, there were several thousand acres of oil and gas leasing sales that took place. Um, and all of this, you know, Trump, Trump isn't doing it, right? It's his, it's his appointees at the Interior Department. And this stuff, if, if you don't know where to look for it, right, this is, this is happening. Um, yeah, not off the radar, but, but lower down. And it's, it's, it's not very, um, yeah, there, there's, not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of excitement when, when these permits go through, but they're really important. Um, and, and there was certainly a, a push to make this happen while, while people's attention were, was, was elsewhere. So are these policies, are they politically popular on the right? Did he do these right towards the end of his administration? Uh, because this is, you know, and, and targeting indigenous land as a politically popular move on the far right. Is this what the, how much are politics pushing this rather than economic concerns? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, it's hard to say because, right, I, I'm not sure that these moves were receiving, you know, large amounts of attention in right-wing media. Um, and I, I certainly didn't get the sense that they were being bragged about. Um, however, you know, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the people running the, the, the natural resource agencies for Trump, um, m- many of Many of them had long careers as lobbyists for extraction companies, mining oil, gas, what have you, for for their entire careers. Um, so this is what this is what they were appointed to do, right? Um, and the end was in sight. And the, these were the these were the last couple of projects on their list. Um, so in that sense, sure, it was politically motivated. But I I, I don't think these are the sorts of things that you do to fire up the base. So it would seem like any administration has the opportunity to sell off whatever public land that they want to. That would seem like a a recipe for cronyism. So to what extent is the Department of the Interior vulnerable to exploitation and cronyism by the private sector? Well, right. So in this this story that I wrote for The Drift, I mean, I, I, I kind of lay out the history of, of the interior department and then it's, it's sub agency, the, the Bureau of land management. And, you know, as you say, while both of them are public land management agencies, th- their history are pretty, pretty shot through with um, uh, being, being captured by, by private interests of all kinds. Um, and I mean, it, in, it's also kind of, it's, it's, it's written into the, the mandate you know, so the, the, the Bureau of Land Management has to hold regular um, oil and gas sales of, of, of public land parcels that, that private companies can buy and explore and drill. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of the, this tension at, at the heart of public land management in the U.S. that uh, these resources are nominally public. Um, but how they've been treated today and, and going all the way back to the beginning um, is, is you know, pr- pretty much ceding to the interests of, of what corporations and uh, extraction industries want. Um, it's, it's a good deal if you, if you want to drill in public lands. Why, uh, why can't the Biden administration do anything about this new lithium mine that uh, Trump signed over to a private company on public land. Why is the Biden administration or any administration limited in what they can do about giving this kind of permit to public land access to an extractive company and, and while you're at a lame duck? Well, um, Trump's still in office, right? D- during the lame duck period. And once the permit, so, you know, the permit is a, is a, the legal contract it's binding um, between the federal government in this case and and a company and once you know once the the um, you know the final environmental impact statements are published um, once the record of decision is made available once the permits are handed over um, you can't repeal that um, now it it is the case that the the Trump administration, you know, of of these projects I mentioned, they didn't get everything done. So you know, just just a couple of days ago, um, there uh, uh, the, the 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 mine I mentioned in Arizona, the one where um, 
the the Forest Service had given had proposed this land swap with this this company that was going to hand over um, land that was that was important to uh, this tribal nation. Um, the the Biden's Forest Service withdrew the final. Um, this this final permit, this final step that was needed to transfer the land. Um, so that's kind of in limbo now. So that was something that the Biden administration could do because the process hadn't gone all the way to its conclusion. Um, but for for some of these, yeah, the 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 thing was done by the time Biden took office. You also write that the Interior Department is best understood as a resource manager. It oversees more than twenty percent of the entire United States. Much of that land, which is concentrated in the Western U.S is in turn governed by an office within the DOI called the Bureau of Land Management, as they were suggesting, whose office and staffers dot the Intermountain West, building hiking trails, fighting wildfires, and leasing rangeland for cattle grazing. And that's just on the surface. Beneath the ground and offshore along the outer continental shelf that hugs America's coastline lie nearly 2 billion acres that contain vast deposits of coal and minerals, as well as reservoirs of natural gas and oil. That makes the Interior Department one of the largest supervisors of fossil fuel resources on the planet. So is the Department of Interior then not only a supervisor of fossil fuel resources, one of the largest on the planet, but also a supervisor of contributions to climate change? Is the way the Absolutely. U.S. manages its land and resources a primary cause of climate change? Well, um, I don't know about primary, but it's big. Um, there, there was a 2018 study that, that said um, about a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. come from uh, either oil or gas or coal that's mined on land controlled by the federal government. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, to, to overstate, you know, that the importance of these agencies of, of the interior department and the BLM for the U.S.'s response to the climate crisis, because, um, you know, depending on the administration, you can, as, as Biden did on one of his first things in office, he put a moratorium on, uh, new sales. Now that's, that's, I can get into that, but that's not as important as it sounds, but it was, it was a moratorium on new oil and gas sales, or you can really encourage them. Um, and uh, yeah, if, you know, if you, if you put, if you put the, the fossil fuel resources that the interior department oversees up against the holdings of, you know, any, any private oil and gas company in the world. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's up there in terms of one of the largest holder of these and, you know, so what they do with them is going to really bear on how, just how bad um, climate change is going to be. And, you know, they've, they've sold a lot of stuff. They, they've sold a lot of oil and gas over the years. So um, yeah, the, the public lands in the U.S.'s contribution to climate change is, is, is significant. So why is the moratorium on permitting? Why is that not as big of a deal as it, it does sound? Because I thought that sounded very promising from the Biden administration, yeah, and I'm so, incredibly skeptical. So it, it 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 does sound good, right? But the the issue is that it's basically that they've so much public land, so many public land oil and gas parcels have been sold already, um, and again, so kind of like with that mine, if they sell. If they, so it's a lease. If they lease a parcel of public land that has oil and gas on it to a company, that's a contract. So they can't break that contract. And these contracts can be for 10 years. They are, usually are for 10 years and they're often extended. So the oil and gas industry is sitting on tens of millions of acres of public lands that, you know, unless you, for now, can't do anything about. And if they want to explore and drill on those parcels, the government can't stop them. So in, in terms of kind of like the latent emissions of public land being held by the oil and gas industry, I mean, there's, there's a ton. And the, the new parcels being leased um, are pale in comparison to the amount being held by the industry. And that doesn't even mention the coal mines. So a, a lot of those emissions come from big coal mines in Wyoming where most of the, the, the thermal coal mining in the U.S. happens these days, um, some of the largest coal mines in the world, those are all happening on, um, that coal's all coming from, from federal public land. And again, um, yeah, the, the, the Biden administration can't just step in and shut that down. 
Jesus. So you write for most of their existence, uh, the agencies that oversee public lands and resources, the Department of Interior and Bureau of Land Management, have operated under conflicting charges. The BLM is supposed to use its resources to generate revenue while conserving those same resources, quote, for the use and enjoyment of present and future generations. Both the revenue creation and the conservation are done in the name of the public and its historical practice, though the agency's interpretation of this change or charge has meant ceding natural resources to private logging, ranching, mining, and drilling interests at low and sometimes no cost. How can giving resources away at little or no cost be serving the public, doing what's best for the public and its resources? Why, why aren't we getting more from extractive industries to exploit public land? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and this, like I said, this goes all the way, this goes all the way back to the beginning. So, and, and to, to take an example from mining and specifically non-coal mining. So mining for, for minerals of various kinds. So copper, gold, silver, lithium these days. Um, Back, back, when, back when mining on public lands was kind of first implemented, and this is going back to the 1870s, um, the, 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 the process for, for, for mining was basically a, a privatization um, process. So if, if you're just like a prospector and you're digging around and you hit, hit a, a deposit of valuable minerals, it gave you the right to dig a mine and you could patent that land and it would be signed over to your private ownership for, for a pittance. Um, and so, you know, th this has been written into, to us public mining law. Now it's, it's been changed and there, there've been, you know, the, the, the patenting thing doesn't happen anymore. Um, but to this day, companies that mine minerals of that kind. So, you know, non-coal metals basically on public lands, um, they 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 don't they don't pay tax um, for 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 the for the resources they extract, um, and there have been you know tons of bills that get introduced in Congress to try to reform this. They never go anywhere. Um, you know, sent sent it often in recent years. It's died in the Senate, um, where politicians from from mining states uh, block it. Um, and you know this this goes for oil and gas too. So the, there is a tax if you drill on public lands. There is a there is an extraction tax, and that money some of that money goes to the states where the the resource was extracted. Um, and it's it's a lot of money. So states like Wyoming and New Mexico get you know in a in a good year hundreds of millions of dollars that goes to roads and bridges and public schools. Um, but that the, the that percent the percent tax on that uh, on that profit. From, from the resources, uh, public resources. It hasn't been increased since 1920. Um, and yeah, so the, 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 it's like I said, it's a really good deal. If you're a corporation and, and you're, you, have a, you have the ability to, to drill or mine on public lands, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of publicly subsidized in some ways. So can you and I just make bids on these lands? I mean, it sounds like a great well, deal. Well, you can... could, yeah, <laughs> technically. So a couple of years ago, um, there's there's an environmental writer uh, named Terry Tepes Williams. Um, she writes a lot about, about the Southwest. Um, and she created like a little LLC and bid on some public, like, I don't forget, it was like a thousand acres or something of, of public land drilling parcels. And, and sometimes these go for like, a dollar an acre, a dollar fifty an acre, um, and she got it. But she kind of—I I forget the exact details—but she kind of got in trouble with the agency. Like you weren't allowed to um, actually bid. You, you weren't allowed to actually buy the land if you didn't intend to drill on it, um, which seems kind of perverse. Um, but yeah, I mean, technically, you could if you wanted to enter one of these bidding processes the the links on the blm website so <laughs> go for it 
we got to get some of this land. It's I, I hear it's cheap. I hear it's a great deal. Hey, look at there. My box just fell off the table. Uh, so uh, you write, until the 1970s, mining companies were not even required to clean up their operations since the minerals had been extracted, leaving the public on the hook for tens of billions of dollars in reclamation costs every day a a 2019 AP investigation found more than 50 million gallons of toxic water leaks out of abandoned mineral mines. So they're still not paying for it. Are there any new regulations or possibilities for regulations as to having more corporate responsibility and cleaning up extraction sites or any any kind of discussion of more accountability when it comes to cleaning up extractive sites? Well, um, so... You know, it kind of it feels like every every couple years um, there was a big attempt in 2017 uh, by Tom Udall, senator from New Mexico, introduced a big hard rock mining um, reform act. Uh, it, these bills are in Congress; they're often pushed by by southwestern uh, western senators. Um, they haven't gone anywhere. Um, I don't. You know, I'm not. I'm not in D.C. I'm not. I'm not privy to to kind of the 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 current goings on. But um, I I guess in this Congress, um, especially with the split Senate, that that would be a hard uh, that would be a hard one to pass. Um, however, you know, um, you you mentioned Deb Holland, uh, who who's Biden's Interior Department nominee, um, and she. Um, for for many reasons would and so I, I saw this morning she's uh, going to get a, a Senate committee hearing vote on Thursday morning, which would then she passes that she'll get she'll go before the full Senate body, um, and and when she gets confirmed and it looks like she will, um, you know she she has pretty pretty significant she will have a lot of authority at her hands to change how the agency operates. Um, and that could be, you know, there, there was a lot of good news reporting about how under, under Trump and Trump's interior secretary, um, first Ryan Zinke and then David Bernhardt, um, a lot of the, the day-to-day work of um, BLM employees was permitting oil and gas. Um, and she could instruct them to do other things. So whether that's, you know, working with cleanup or, or conservation or plugging oil wells. I mean, th- there's all sorts of ways that she doesn't need, you know, our, our uh, kind of stuck Congress to act to just change the emphasis of the agency. Now to, to make real change, to, to do something along the lines of banning fracking or increasing that tax on oil and gas drilling on public lands that I mentioned earlier, that would require Congress to get its act together. Um, but in terms, of the, the, there's a lot she can do unilaterally. So there's a lot that, they sh- that she can do unilaterally. And, uh, you know, uh, Sally Jewell, she finished out the Obama administration as Interior Secretary. Jewell is yep. a former oil engineer uh, who had moved to the banking industry and uh, eventually began or became a board member at REI, the outdoor gear retailer. Jewel was followed by Trump's first secretary of the interior, you pointed out, Ryan Zinke, an oil industry and pipeline executive. Zinke was followed by Trump's second person at interior, David Bernhardt, an oil and energy industry lobbyist. Currently, Scott De La Vega, an attorney and former inspector general of the interior, is the acting secretary until Biden's nominee, Deb Holland, as you were mentioned, is confirmed. Holland, you were saying, is Native American, was one of the first two Native Americans to ever be elected to Congress in 2018, and she'll be the first ever Native American to be a member of the cabinet. So going back to the Obama administration, you have people who did work in the fossil fuel industry. You did have Obama being very friendly with the extractive industries during his time in office. Do you think that this means that there's been a major shift within the Democratic Party when it does come to energy policy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and and I think you're right to kind of point out that that Obama's record is, is, is complicated um, because, you know, there, there were things like um, a cap on, on methane emissions from public lands, which hadn't been implemented before. And methane's many times more potent than, than CO2 as a, as a, a 
as a driver of climate change. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, on a, on a per acre basis, um, the, the Obama administration leased more public land drilling parcels per, per year than Trump. Um, and that had a lot to do with, um, you know, oil prices at the time. But then also, you know, there, there was this deal he, he, he cut with congressional Republicans um, to repeal, uh, to repeal a, a, an export ban. Um, so up, up to that point, American oil and gas companies couldn't ex export the product um, in exchange for a renewable energy tax credit extension. Um, and after that repeal went through, I mean, the U.S. really became, I, for the first time in you know, like decades and decades and decades, maybe ever, we, the U.S. became a net exporter of, of oil and gas. Um, so yeah, and and I think that you know the fact that kind of we had four years of the Trump administration of kind of un unrestrained um, submission to to oil and gas interests from from these agencies. Um, yeah, I, I I I wonder if there's a sense that um, you kind of can't mess around right now, and and Holland's nomination might be might be evidence of that. I mean, she's co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. You know, she, 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 her congressional seat was, was in New Mexico, which is an enormous oil and gas state. Um, but even so, I mean, she speaks very candidly and openly about the, the, the need to um, stop drilling um, and to curb emissions like right now and to, uh, you know, to, to, to reckon with the, the impact of, the, of these industries. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite interested to see what she'll do in charge of a an agency as big and powerful as, as the interior. Yeah, and I'm also just curious what she can do because, I mean, to what degree is she limited in her capability to actually make real change? You write, predictably, perhaps there was a backlash in the late 1970s and early 1980s, a loose coalition of Western politicians at all levels of government, along with many ranchers, miners, and logging companies, backlash against public lands, challenging federal oversight of public land in what became known as the Sagebrush Revolution. Count me in as a rebel, Ronald Reagan declared at a 1980 campaign stop in Salt Lake City. His administration would roll back environmental and land use regulations at the urging of corporate interests. Now, as you know, Nick, this is always portrayed as the big bad government against the small guy, the rancher, the cowboy, the embodiment of the United States, their centuries long traditions and a threat to their individual rights. How difficult is it to side with the government when it comes to public resources? When, as you quote a Reagan advisor saying, a huge it's a huge socialist anomaly in America's capitalist system. Isn't supporting public resources anti-capitalist, socialist, even un-American? Well, um, I, it, it seems like the Reagan administration thought that. Um, yeah, so the, this backlash you talk about, it was in response to these... Um, Okay, I, here, here's where to start. So the, the BLM, the, it oversees a lot of grazing in the West. And up until the 70s, you know, the, it, it was overseen by the, these grazing boards that were, um, you know, entirely ranchers. And, you know, these are not small ranchers. These are like the big cattle barons. And they just kind of did whatever they wanted. Um, in the 70s, you know, along with like the Clean Air Act and all these other uh, big pieces of environmental legislation, there was something called the Federal Land Policy Management Act, which is a terrible acronym, but it was super important. Um, and it, it kind of pushed the BLM's mandate to um, preserving to, to, to some degree um, the, the rangelands that it, that it oversees. And, um, you know, big uranium miners, big cattle companies, um, powerful Western conservative lawmakers um, really fought back on this and wanted to, to return to, to local control, to more private control. Um, and this, yeah, this became known as the Sagebrush Rebellion. Um, and then, yeah, there, there, there did kind of arise this sense that, um, you know, of all the aspects of the federal government, this this claim to have public lands managed by the federal government within states is this kind of like anomaly of, of socialism or something along those lines. And I think that the history of the Interior Department looks nothing like socialism. <laughs> it looks like 
a lot of private companies pretty much getting their way m most of the time. Um, but, you know, there, there have been a couple kind of versions of the Sagebrush Rebellion since the 70s. Um, and, and yeah, all of them are kind of framed around this is um, big government intrusion. And, you know, whether it's kind of like reduce the size of it, that might be the one more moderate of the Sagebrush Rebellion stances to pretty extreme Western politicians who say public lands shouldn't exist. All of this should be returned to the states, which would effectively privatize it because the states couldn't manage that much land and it'd be sold off. So you also point out that overwhelmed by ethics investigations, former DOI chief under Trump, Zinke resigned after two years and was replaced by David Bernhard, a career DC lobbyist for oil and gas companies. Bernhard's industry ties were so numerous that at Interior, he notoriously carried around a small card that listed all the all of his conflicts of interest. With less fanfare, Bernhardt picked up where Zinke left off, easing restraints on oil and gas drilling, cutting regulations, pushing career agency out the door, and during the pandemic, approving the removal of federally mandated taxes for oil and gas drillers on public land. How much cover has the pandemic given the Department of Interior to weaken regulations and undermine environmental laws? What has been the impact of the pandemic on the Interior? Well, let's see, you know, you, you bring up the, the, the removal of taxes, which was temporary, but it was telling, right? Because um, the, at the start of the pandemic, you know, global oil prices plummeted um, and, and it kind of, and because of a, a glut and oversupply and Bernhard, <laughs> rather than taking, taking uh, positions that would, you know, reduce production, right? Um, kind of did everything you would do if you wanted to increase drilling. Um, so it kind of made no sense given the, the, the state of the global oil industry at the time. Um, you know, I don't think that, um, unless I'm missing something, um, I can't think of like a huge role. Well, I guess there were some that I, it, it wasn't like there was, a, there were huge rollbacks that happened right after the pandemic hit. It's just kind of like they, continued at the same pace they were going on before, which was pretty consistent. Um, and then, yeah, like I said at the beginning, you know, once Trump lost, we did see kind of a, a, a revving up of let's schedule a bunch of oil and gas lease sales. Let's finish off these mining permits that we have in the works, uh, that kind of thing. But then there's the dependence that we have of these mineral sales. As you point out, the Interior Department is under constant pressure to sell out land from Western states because half of the taxes from public land extraction goes to the state in which the extraction occurs. That money pays for schools, hospitals, parks, and roads. A single uh, record-breaking 2018 oil and gas le lease sale in southeastern New Mexico allowed the state to increase education spending by a half a billion dollars the next fiscal year. In fact, before the pandemic tanked oil prices, New Mexico's governor had proposed statewide free public college funded mostly by oil and gas taxes. So, Nick, to you, what's wrong with public resource funded free college, hospitals, parks and roads? What What's the problem that, that you see? Sounds there? pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it sounds great. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and that's why it's complicated. Right. I mean, so they're really important things that a lot of states um, especially in the West, where a lot of these public lands are, are concentrated, um, you know, state budgets, these, these have been written into their state budgets. This is, they depend on these sources of revenue. And if you took them away like that, um, which kind of is what the pandemic did, these states are suffering, um, you know, really important things would, would suddenly lack a source of revenue. Um, so, you know, if, and, and this, this is, this is something that, um, you know, is, is, talked about a lot these days as it should, like what does a just transition away from fossil fuels look like? Because um, not only are there, you know, towns, communities that depend on these industries for their livelihoods and have for decades, um, but, you know, it goes up to, to the entire state budgets of New Mexico and Wyoming and um, are, are built around expected revenue um, from, from selling these things. Um, so yeah, if, if you know, I, I I think it's fair to say, like, if you're going to recommend, you, and we should, right? We the the climate crisis is is here, um, and if if we're going to say like we need to drastically change how we're getting energy, you should also say how you're going to replace that source of revenue for these states because um, 
you know, that this, this, this will impact people's lives. Interior Department nominee Holland could, you point out, could also force the agency to consult in good faith with tribal governments when land use decisions will impact them. Tribal consultation is a legally mandated process, but the Interior Department too often does a cursory job when not neglecting the process entirely. A former tribal administrator herself, Holland, regularly criticized these shortcomings in Congress, and she could break new ground as head of the Department of Interior. In recent years, the push to return stolen land to indigenous tribes has gained momentum. The land back movement, which we've discussed here on our show, is a matter of justice, but often it's also good environmental policy. In recent years, federal land has been returned to tribes in Oregon and Northern California and along the Klamath River, which we've reported on here on the show, which the Yurok tribe recently won a court battle to grant the legal rights of a person. How much of a challenge is it to give land back? Can Holland as easily give land back as she can as the head of DOI, take land away? Well, uh, it's not easy. Um, however, you know, as, as you say, like this is a, this is a, a movement that's, that's growing, you know, and, and it has momentum. Um, and there, there, there are examples of, of how this works now. Um, and, you know, I think that um, they're, they're really good examples out there right now. You know, I, you mentioned the Oregon, the Oregon example, um, where really poorly managed BLM land, um, gets, gets returned in that case. It was, um, the Umco tribe, the Cow Creek band, um, of the Umco tribe, um, that, you know, the, 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 the tribe stewardship of the land is, is, you know, not even close, so much more, um, conscientious and attentive than what the BLM was doing, which is basically nothing. Um, it's a, you know, I think that with, with each of these examples, um, you know, it requires that the, the BLM um, act as a real partner um, to the sovereign tribal nations. And, you know, with Holland in charge, um, I would imagine that that will only improve. Um, and, you know, even 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 kind of stepping away from from examples of the land back process, you know, even just consultation, which is legally mandated, but almost never happens, rarely happens at the magnitude that it's supposed to, you know, giving giving the sovereign tribal nations real input into the, the natural resource management decisions that will, will impact them. Um, I mean, just that would overhaul. American federal land use policies, um, because yeah, it's, it's it's never been done at at the at the degree that it should. You also point out that in his address to the nation on November seventh last year, President Elect Biden said that we are called on to reckon with our nation's past of racial hierarchy and domination. Such a reckoning would require reconsideration of what we mean when we call federal lands public. And then you quote. San Diego State University professor April Anson in a 2019 paper writing, discussions of the commons often still assume a public that is, in fact, particular to white settler subjects. Is it possible to take the white settler out of the Department of the Interior? Probably not. Um, you know, the, the, you know I, I, I note in the, in, the, in the story that, you know, kind of, the first thing that, that one of the first acts that opened up kind of American land use management of, of the Western US and the Midwest was the Homestead Act, which was essentially taking all indigenous land, saying it was the federal government's and then parceling it out to farmers. Um, so, you know, the, the Interior Department all the way back to, to what, to, to the laws that kind of formed it um, is based on, yeah, stolen land and, and, and genocide often. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to see, you know, it's hard to know what to, to do with that history. Um, you know, you, there, there, there are certainly ways in which the department can be better managed. Um, you know, as we said, I mean, they're, they're kind of hard, hard to stop talking about the ways in which could, it, it could be improved. But, you know, I think it, at the end, you're always going to come down to this bedrock contradiction of you are dealing with stolen land here. Yeah, it really seems like the, it is the institution 
of the institutionalization of colonialism here in the United States. We have been speaking with journalist Nick Bolin, who wrote the article, The Land Was Ours, Trump, Biden, and Public Lands, which was posted at The Drift, and you can find it at thedriftmag.com. Nick, I've got one last question for you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, I promise we do this with everybody. This isn't just you. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Or our audience is going to hate your response. You write fracked wells are extremely productive at first, but production rates decline fast, often by more than half in the first year. Since the beginning, fracking companies have promised that technological advances would solve the production decline problem. They never have, which means that fracking companies drill new wells almost constantly, often near impoverished communities, which requires significant financial capital, a sort of ancestor to the we work fiasco the fracking industry convinced Wall Street investors, hedge funds, and venture capitalists that if they kept pouring money, kept pouring in money, profits would soon come out of the ground. They never did, and given the post-pandemic oil downturn, it's likely that they never will. On Monday's show, we were talking to the Ohio River Valley Institute's researcher Sean O'Leary, who has a brand new study out, and it shows that the Fracking, despite what it claims, does not lead to an increase in jobs. It does not lead to an increase in income in the local communities where it participates, where it, it happens. And it does not help out the local community. It even leads to population declines and people fleeing those areas because of the devastation that's done to the community. So is, Nick, is the best part of the pandemic that fracking might be over? The best part of the pandemic? Um yeah, that's got to be up there. Um, you know, I, I, I think my, my doing laundry once a month, you know, personally, that, that's up there too. But yeah, at a more society level, um, yeah, I, the, you know, fracking's profit problem, um, you know, it was there if you, if you wanted to look for it, um, you know, as, as far back as, um, you know, the, the mid-2000s. Um, but yeah the 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 oil price crash of of last spring um i mean that really really kind of tore the cover off um on on the profit problem and just that it's been propped up by billions and billions in in financial capital that um hasn't really had a re- hasn't really had a profit return on it um and uh you know, you, you're seeing financial institutions say that that oil and gas investments are, are increasingly a bad bet. Um, and that's, a, yeah, I don't think that that's going to change even as, as we pull out of the pandemic. Well, Nick, from the rest of society, I want to thank you for once a month doing your laundry. I really appreciate that. <laughs> We've been speaking. I'll try, I'll try to do better. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, we've been speaking with journalist Nick Bolin, who wrote the article, The Land Was Ours, Trump, Biden, and Public Lands. You can follow Nick and find out more about him by going to his website, nickbolin.com, and you can follow him on Twitter, at NPBolin. Thank you so much for being on our show. We're going to annoy you in the future to have you back on the show because I've really enjoyed our conversation, and this writing is fantastic. So thanks so much for being on our show, Nick. Thanks, Chuck. This is fun. Take care. Bringing you... Bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins whatever piece of this is hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise and all of the ways you can support this is hell by going to thisishell.com. And clicking on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff, here's the quiet part loud. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sweet. You got him? <laughs> yes, sir. All right. All right. So Aaron D. says, wearing one's mask under one's nose to <laughs> signify you have been vaccinated. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, 
Another Aaron, <laughs> a different spelling of Aaron, D, says vaccine Band-Aid. Okay. Uh, we do have to have something that would signal that you are vaccinated. You know, we we wore those stupid stickers that said I voted, you know. Can't we get one that says I'm vaccinated? Yeah, yes. We should. Special Band-Aids. Yes, something. that's good. Laddie... Ladio says N95 baklava baklavakas. <laughs> Baklaklavas. Oh, yeah. Nick A says it's back. A, it's a gator, by the way. It's the same thing. Backwards, upside down visors. Again. <laughs> it's so stupid. And Jeremy A says something to do with COVID. All right. There. See? <laughs> Observant and creative I am. <laughs> Uh, let's see. What's the uh, hot fashion trend of sorry. spring 2021? We have some mixed in from a couple days ago. So okay. Stephen S. says, gapped teeth. <laughs> Gross. Mark A. says, stylish full body armor, not the ill-fitting mismatched tactical gear that the MAGA crowd wears. Yes, that would be cool. Like actual suits of armor. That would be really neat. Sky C. says, wait, Egon Sheely? Shiley? What's his name? Sheel. Sheel. Yeah. I don't get the reference. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> it's, it's an artist from the early 20th century who died in the last pandemic. Oh, but right. we have a somebody who's uh, volunteering to be a producer on the show who goes by that name. So it's either the dead artist or somebody using it. <laughs> Michael, LP says, the richly moisturized pelts of the wealthy. Oh, that sounds good. That's a fashion trend that needs to be employed. George W. says Q, an on t-shirt with the I despise alien babies face mask. <laughs> and just a few more. Jesse W. says corndog earrings. <laughs> what the hell? Tyler R. says vintage PPE. I've been having a taste for corn dogs, by the way, lately. Ooh, gross. <laughs> Kenneth G. says I'm vaccinated rubber, rubber bracelets. All right. That's another good sign of... Yes. Yeah. And our Jeffrey says, liquid nitrogen cooled cod pieces. <laughs> God, that's disgusting. Is that it? That is it. Uh, you can leave your answer to this week's question from Al again. What is the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? At our Facebook page, you can tweet them to us. You can email us your responses, but we must have your reply by the end of tomorrow's show following the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin when we will be announcing this week's winner of whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise the winner wants. My biggest brother is dead, and this is hell. My biggest brother had values, and he held them dearly. So much so that his nickname in our East Detroit neighborhood was Scruples. <laughs> he was called Scruples because his friends on the block, they, they had no scruples. And they found it absolutely hilarious, falling down funny, that Matt, or anybody for that matter, would have scruples. Now, scruples are not morals, although they are often used interchangeably. Unlike morals, which represent what is right and proper, scruples are that bad feeling you get when you think something may not be the right thing to do. And in my neighborhood, on our block, hesitating and considering if something you are doing might be wrong was a laughable offense. Scruples were an obstacle. Consequences were for later, all that was important was now. But Matt's scruples tested, strengthened, and reinforced his values and beliefs. He held his principles in high regard, and sometimes I think he may have been a little too high when he was standing up for what he believed. When he went off to college, he left the neighborhood behind as well as his nickname, as his scruples were not seen as an oddity by his new friends he made at university. They, too, were concerned with what is right and what is wrong, and with them, Matt became very, very active in student politics. Those politics took him to marches on Washington, D.C., environmental campaigns, protests against nuclear and chemical operations throughout the U.S., being a delegate at the county and state Democratic Party conventions, of which he took me as a teenager, and I found them to be incredibly boring. He was elected as local township constable as a total goof, winning as a writing candidate against someone who is actually on the ballot, and neither one of them getting even 10 votes. And like I said yesterday, he was also co-founder and co-chair of the County Human Rights Committee and worked with the Local Transportation Committee or Commission. I'm certain he did far more than that, but you get the idea. Scruples politicized his principles, and he put them into political action. But along the way, 
when my brother was going to college. He was also part of the very active leftist anti-war alternative media that was happening on campuses everywhere across the state of Michigan, which would foster journalists like Michael Moore and Ben Hamper. And if you have not read Ben's memoir, Rivet Head, do it. Matt was a founding member and editor-in-chief of his university's student newspaper. Matt brought the passion of his principles and politics. He brought his scruples to the paper. Sometime between September 5th and September 22nd, 1975, Matt's scruples were put to the test. The editorial board at, of their lefty student rag, Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, a paper called Mountain Rush, they had decided that in the middle gatefold of their paper, crossing over onto both pages, perfectly centered, there would be a photo of a pair of hands rolling a joint. The hilarious caption read, don't do drugs. The only good dope to shoot is Gerald Ford. Upon making the decision, the editorial board making their decision, the authors of the articles that surrounded the image in the gatefold requested their names be taken off the bylines. Given the nature of the image and caption, they thought it would be best their names were nowhere on the page. My brother's scruples went off, and he would have none of it, insisting that his name would stay on his byline to the art to his article that was right around that image, making a bold statement about his brave support for the press. I know this event took place between September 5th and September 22nd, 1975, because on September 5th, 1975, Squeaky Fromm tried to kill President Gerald Ford. And then on September 22nd, Sarah Jane Moore tried to assassinate Gerald Ford, which explains the reporter's scruples being triggered by the photo that was to accompany their writing. It was right in between two assassination attempts on Gerald Ford's life. Obviously, they didn't know the second one was going to be happening soon. I also know what happened between these two dates because something happened to my brother between those two attempted murders of a sitting president, two failed assassinations less than three weeks apart, because that's how much everybody hated Ford for pardoning Nixon. A few days later, while Matt was at class, his roommates were not, and they were hotboxing the hell out of their dorm room. There was a knock at the door. His roommates and their friends were so high they'd gone past pot paranoia and had moved on to hysterical laughter at everything, at anything. One of the stoners answered the door, and according to what they told my brother, three-foot bong in hand, although I'm certain that bong gets taller every time the story is told, on the other side of the door were two men dressed in matching business suits with accompanying thin ties. They asked for my brother, and the bong holder openly laughed, asking, who are you, the FBI, and then slammed the door in their face. After class, my brother returned to his room. His roommates told him what happened, laughing while they said, some guys who look like the FBI were looking for you. Nobody really thought they were the FBI, so Matt wrapped up their session with them. Then headed, they all headed out, leaving my brother alone in a smoke-filled room, probably incredibly high. A few minutes later, there was another knock at the door. My brother answered. The smoke escaped the room in a cloud as the door opened and right into the faces of two guys who sure enough looked like the FBI and asked my brother if he was Matt Mertz. He said he was, and sure enough, they identified themselves as FBI agents and asked if they could ask him some questions. My brother said he was in such a state of shock at this moment, he was suddenly found himself just sitting down with them, and one was asking him questions about things like if he owned a gun or how to use one, questions that seemed related to an actual crime, if he had any history of violence. The other would ask seemingly innocuous questions, the answers of which were easily available on the public record, like the names of his parents, his siblings, the schools he attended. At that point, both the agents' questions got a bit more creepy, apparently. The guy who wanted to know if he had a gun started asking if he had a grievance against the government, to which Scruples, of course, said yes. And if so, who are the specific politicians that are the targets of your ire? The other agent, who was asking what seemed like trivial questions, started asking oddly specific trivia, like who my brother's sixth or seventh grade teacher is. He couldn't remember, and then the question my brother said freaked him out more than any. 
The agent who had been asking about Matt's education asked him about a certain student by name. I can't remember the name, but at that time, neither could Matt. While he was being questioned, he was just freaked out that he heard a somewhat familiar name. He said he got distracted thinking about that name, couldn't really focus on the next question or two or however many there were because of that oh-so-familiar name that was on the tip of his tongue and on the tip of his mind trying to get out and figure out Where did I hear that name before? So the interrogation continued, but Matt interrupted the agents and said that he finally did recognize that name. He remembered it, and that he had, whoever it was, was in their same math class in eighth grade. Matt remembered they sat next to each other. The agent corrected him and said they were actually in science class together, and that the student sat behind, not next to Matt. All Matt could think of was how they got his freaking 8th grade science class seating chart. They then inquired as to the last time Matt saw his former classmate. He told the agent that he had not seen him since being in that class together. That's when they showed Matt the spread in Mountain Rush with the hands rolling a joint and the caption, Don't do drugs, the only good dope to shoot is Gerald Ford, and how he was on the editorial board and his name was the only byline on the entire gatefold. Matt told me he originally laughed and then quickly became horrified, asking, Do you really think a blind guy can shoot and kill the president? Do I look like the kind of person who would assassinate someone? Something along the lines of laughing and then desperately explaining how he was likely incapable physically of killing anyone, let alone the President of the United States. Besides, my brother had scruples, and Matt would never kill, and to the best of my knowledge, did not kill anyone during his short time here on planet Earth. Matt never did find out why they asked about that one student. He asked around the neighborhood, and nobody had any ideas. He had The student had moved away years and years before anyone had graduated from high school. Sure, there was Manson groupie Squeaky from, and Yes, there was Sarah Jane Moore who tried to kill President Ford because, as she said in 2014, everybody was talking about it. And she believed that the assassination of an unelected president appointed by a crook would bring about a revolution. And somebody was definitely going to do it, so it might as well be her as she was a nobody and not a leader in the revolutionary movement. So she believed she was expendable. And yes, both Squeaky and Sarah Jane did escape from jail at one point, and both were caught which is a weird thing I found out while researching this. Yet, despite all of that, the only assassination attempt of Gerald Ford I will ever remember is the one not committed by my biggest brother, who I miss very much, and without him, whom, I don't know. Yes, this is hell. On tomorrow's final part of my three-part series on the passing of my brother, you will find out why I am a total dick who narked on his brother, ratted him out to his folks, my folks, Oh, for the stupidest, stupidest childish reason. But again, I was a child at the time, so can you blame me? By the way, yes, you can definitely blame me because it was a real dicky thing to do to rat out my brother. All that said, Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time, here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow we have Ray Levy Uida. Is that right? I'm going to say Ray Levy Uyeda. Let's go with that. Uyeda. On her Baffler article, A Bleak Future for Water. Tune into tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com to listen to the podcast or listen to the podcast shortly after at the same place or the live stream or whatever. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks so much to Richard for producing. Thanks to Nick Bowen, our guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's and all of this week's guests with my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I am also also a race and gender traitor. This is My hell. demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me of profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.